This week in KMA Land, wind turbine and solar energy discussion dominates Page County Supervisors Meeting. Questions raised in Montgomery County Solar Ordinance Hearing. Settlement reached in Shen Water Plant Lawsuit. Margaret Everly passes at 102. And we'll look back on the 30th anniversary of the night the courthouse burned. I'm Mike Peterson. Two recurring topics dominated the news in KMA land this week. The continuing debates over wind and solar power. Page County's Board of Supervisors dealt with both topics in a marathon meeting Tuesday night. By a two-to-one vote, the supervisors rejected a proposal from Supervisor Jacob Holmes that would tax wind turbines and their associated properties at the same rate as commercial properties in the county. In 2008, the board approved an incremental tax assessment that taxes turbines at 0% of their assessed valuation in their first year and increases the rate by 5% annually until it reaches 30% in year 7. Holmes says he asked County Assessor Jason Renander to run a comparison between taxing the structures of the special rate versus the standard commercial rate of 90% of assessed value. If you look at the taxes collected because this ordinance is in place uh, right now currently on the books if they would uh, build wind turbines over 10 years per wind turbine they would pay 96000 total over 10 years. You see that. If they pay like every other single commercial property owner in Page County, everyone that employs people, all of them, they would pay 443000 on the same, same thing. Holmes says he feels wind turbines should be taxed at the same rate as other commercial property in the county. This would be the smartest decision we could ever make is repealing this ordinance. Uh, and I just, and I also think if, if they paid the same as every other business owner in Page County, the same thing, not a dollar more, and we brought in the same taxes we collect from everybody, we could probably back off the taxes, which would help them too, on everyone. It would be an even way to do this. Molmes's proposal was defeated by no votes from Supervisors Chuck Morris and Alan Armstrong. Morris says increasing the tax rate on wind turbines would ultimately lead to projects being developed in other counties and not in Page County. It's interesting to me that uh, there have been so many attempts to stop the development of wind and it's, you know, it's not about money. Now tonight it's all about let's get more money because you know darn good and well that that would prohibit a project from coming forward. We Maybe. would lose the project. Holmes says the proposal is not about stopping wind from coming into Page County. I've never been about stopping wind. All I've ever said for years is make them come fair and right. Fair is paying the same taxes. Fair is putting them from the property line. I've, I've said that a hundred times. If they come fair, I don't care if they build, cover the whole county if it's fair. Do not care if it's fair and right, if people agree to it, but you do not take people's rights and you do not charge one guy 90%, one guy not even 30%. The current ordinance governing wind turbine valuations was passed in September 2008 by then-supervisors Jim Richardson, John Herzberg, and Elaine Armstrong. Also Tuesday night, the supervisors held another in a series of workshops to put together the initial language for an ordinance governing solar structures in the county. After discussing height requirements and death guidelines for transmission, the supervisors briefly discussed how solar panels and solar installations would be taxed. Supervisors Chair Chuck Morris says solar farms are not taxed the same way a wind turbine would be. The county does not receive the volume of dollars on solar farms as they do on wind farms. Wind farms are 
dramatically better for county government. Solar farms at $800 or $1,000 an acre to a landowner adds economic development to your to your county base, but the landowners are the ones who really benefit. Perhaps the biggest disagreement still remaining on wording for the new ordinance deals with setback requirements from non-participating landowners. One of the proposed ordinances discussed by the board would require a 300-foot setback from a non-participating landowner's home. Supervisor Jacob Holmes says he believes any setback should be tied to the property line and not the residence of a non-participant with the ability of the non-participant to waive the setback distance. If they can give it up, if that's written in here that way, and if it's if the few feet, 300 feet or 200 feet or whatever, is going to change their big-time, humongous project, mm -hmm. I imagine they could go to that guy and say, hey, we'd like to build this gigantic solar farm here. You're going to lose a couple hundred foot of cushion to your farm about building a house. Would you like to take a little bit of money and join our program? And he could give it up. He could just sign it away if he wanted to. Holmes says the proposed solar ordinance, in addition to a wind turbine ordinance already in the books, are the only two places that use the residence instead of the property line for setback requirements. That's part of one of the properties you always think about. You could build on it, build something on it. I mean, where in the world, other than these weird ordinances, do we not measure from property lines? I don't understand. Property lines what everything's measured from. You don't ever go on, I don't go to my neighbor's house and measure off his house to determine where I'm going to put my shed. It's, it's always off the property line. Everything. In town, so, Morris everything. Is in Immorris is increasing the setbacks or making them too restrictive could lead to solar developers turning to other counties with more favorable regulations. Following discussion, the supervisors agreed to conduct more research and discuss the proposed ordinance at a future meeting. Meanwhile, a solar energy ordinance public hearing at Tuesday morning's Montgomery County Board of Supervisors meeting revealed more questions than answers. Contrary to the solar energy ordinance passed in Fremont County, where approval goes through the Board of Supervisors, Montgomery County is pursuing the use of the county's Planning and Zoning Commission and Board of Adjustments. While saying she isn't against a solar ordinance, County Zoning Commissioner Vicki Rosander says multiple commission members were not present for its approval on October 13th before being brought to the board. When this proposed ordinance was discussed and voted on, there were only three members of the Planning and Zoning Commission in attendance and only two members of the Board of Adjustment. Also, Barry was not able to attend that meeting due to illness and the county engineer had to fill in for him. While she did her best to answer the questions that were presented, since she had not been in attendance at the previous meeting when this ordinance was initially presented. Ron Sanders says several changes were made to the proposed ordinance since its approval at the October 13th meeting, including two new pages. However, she says she and the commission had yet to see those changes before Tuesday's meeting. Red Oak resident Maggie McEwen suggested potentially a following the state of Illinois and focusing on limiting the size of any solar farm or garden. That way they haven't been these huge solar installations that disrupt um, a large amount of land and they tend to be more profitable and more manageable um, and I think we should look into that because there's no um, discussion of size um, with this hundred foot setback there's no indication of what size is a hundred foot for a 10 panel 
or 5,000 panels. According to the Illinois Solar Energy Association, most solar project lots in the state are limited to roughly 20 acres. Supervisor Mike Olson warned the county shouldn't drag its feet too long on this as solar is becoming more and more prominent. The company comes in and gets the approval of the landowners right now in this county. They can do whatever they want because there is no ordinance or policy in place. And that almost happened southwest of Red Oak. And one landowner stopped it, or we would have one now of about 350 acres or maybe more would be down there. And there would be no, no guidance or ordinance or, or stipulations on how it's done. Ultimately, the board tabled the approval of the first reading of the ordinance to conduct more research on the topic and did not specify a date for when discussion would return for formal action. Six years of court battles regarding the city of Shenandoah's water treatment plant construction ended this week. By unanimous vote at a special meeting Tuesday evening, the Shenandoah City Council approved a settlement agreement with Fox Engineering and Structural Engineering. Council members approved the settlement following a closed session of roughly half an hour. City Administrator A.J. Lyman disclosed the settlement terms to KMA News. Fox and Structural Engineering will pay the city a $250,000 settlement uh, against our claims uh, towards those entities and uh, for some city attorney fees. And then uh, Fox Engineering will, would release their counterclaim of around $50,000 uh, towards the city related to the water treatment. The settlement ends litigation that first began in 2015 when Oakview DCK, the project's original general contractor, went bankrupt and an assurity company secured a new contract. Kind of at no point was the city really ever at fault with anything. It's just, you know, we were the, the victim of bad circumstances uh, along the way. And so, uh, you know, six years later, we're, uh, we're finally able to put this situation to bed. We did uh, settle with Liberty Mutual and Vertex about uh, two years ago now. And then this will be settling with the engineers related more to the design of the plant itself. Back in 2019, the council approved a settlement with Liberty Mutual and Vertex Engineering. The two companies took the project's reins from Oakview in early 2015, only to encounter delays in its completion. Under that agreement, the city paid the balance of the original contract, totaling more than $816,000. Liberty Mutual and Vertex then paid back $650,000 in liquidated damages for delays in the project. In addition, the city retained its right to pursue litigation with Fox and the plan's engineering aspects. With Roger McQueen assuming the mayor's post in January, Lyman says it was important to put the city's water plant litigation behind it. She was the woman behind two of the founding fathers of rock and roll. Bye bye love, bye bye happiness, hello loneliness. Bye bye love, one of the classic hits of the Everly Brothers in the 1950s. Margaret Everly, the mother of Don and Phil Everly, died Monday in Nashville at the age of 102. Margaret and husband Ike and their two sons moved to Shenandoah in the mid-1940s when Ike was a performer on KMA and KFNF in the era of live music over the airwaves. Bill Hillman, the owner of Shenandoah's Depot Restaurant, is a longtime friend of the Everleys. Though Ike was the family's first performer, Hillman tells KMA News, it was Margaret who encouraged Don and Phil to become musicians. When the Everly family moved to Shenandoah in the 40s, uh, it was just Ike Everly that was the musician. And, and because of Margaret, she decided that they'd get paid more by KMA and KFNF, by the way. 
if they had a whole family. And so they put the whole family together, and uh, she sang, and, and the boys sang and played guitar eventually. And, and, of course, you know, the rest is history. But, but she's the one that's the catalyst behind the whole thing of, uh, of making the Everly Brothers who they were later in life, and, and great musicians, of course. Eventually, the Everleys moved to Tennessee in the mid-1950s, and the Everly Brothers became music legends, churning out hit after hit. Ike Everly died in 1975. Sadly, Margaret outlived both her sons. Phil died in 2014, and Don passed away in August. Hillman spoke to her grandson, Eden Everly, who performed a concert in Shenandoah in late September. Hillman says Eden indicated his grandmother's health began to decline after Don's passing, but that she was at peace at the end of her life. Today, December 11th, marks the 30th anniversary of the Page County Courthouse fire. In commemoration of that tragic and historic event, KMA News presented a special series of reports this week looking back at the fire, its aftermath, and the effort by Page County residents to save the venerable structure. Standing majestically in Clarinda Square since the late 1880s, the Page County Courthouse has been an enduring symbol of the county government, That's what made what transpired in a cold night in December 1991 even more shocking. And anyone living in Clarinda that fateful evening 30 years ago remembers where they were when a major disaster took place. Shortly after 5 p.m., Clarinda's fire department was called to a report of a fire at the courthouse. Then Page County recorder Dennis Parrott was working in the building at the time the fire was first discovered. Parrott described the moment in an interview with then-KMA News Director Bill Bone. When I came downstairs, I could smell smoke and heard the local sirens, and I thought maybe one of the local businesses were on fire. So I stuck my head outside the north door, and up up the walk came the Deputy Sheriff Mike Williams, and I said, Mike, do you want to use my telephone? I was going to offer some help. And Mike said, you know, hell no, the courthouse is on fire. And we turned around and started walking back in. And the whole rotunda area then up in the top was smoke really heavy. Wendell Leonard served as the county's magistrate from 1977 to 2009. Leonard told KMA News this week he had just returned home after a long day at work at the courthouse. My neighbor called me. He lived down the street from me, and he had a scanner on all the time. And uh, he heard the call come in about the fire. Well, he called me on the phone and told me the courthouse was burning. Well, I thought he was kidding, and I i don't know, I said something, and he said, I'm serious. Lorinda Fire Chief Roger Williams was a sergeant in the department at the time. Williams told KMA News this week he saw the first signs of trouble upon arrival. I seen the smoke, uh, black smoke coming out of the attic area on the east side. You can see flame in the window area, and I thought we were going to be in for a long night. From the southeast corner of the attic, flames quickly spread throughout the second and third floors. Williams says firefighters' existing equipment proved inadequate to battle a fire of that magnitude. And the courthouse's traditional canopy of lights Christmas decorations posed another firefighting challenge. At the time, the fire was high up in the roof area, so we had two and a half and inch and a half inch hoses trying to reach that high. And uh, once you realized we couldn't do that, then we had to get an aerial to get higher. Just the volume of water we didn't have. And then the, uh, the canopy of lights, we had the, back in those days, the huge light bulbs. Some of the wires had burnt through and they were falling. They were collapsing. 
they went and they hit the ground and sounded like you know gunshots. And then the police had to uh, make sure to evacuate the area because of falling debris. Spectacular flames shot from the structure's roof and plumes of smoke were visible for miles. Soon the call went out to fire departments and surrounding areas for assistance. Firefighters from more than a dozen departments joined the battle. Of particular significance was Red Oak Fire Department's aerial truck, one of the few such vehicles in operation in southwest Iowa at the time. Williams's strong mutual aid from other departments made the difference. When the department showed up, they were assigned a certain side of the courthouse. It's like any incident, everybody works together, it's like clockwork. At first, it's kind of chaos, and then you start getting going, and it's uh, everybody did a great job, and all they worked well together. I mean, it was, it was amazing that uh, you think back, you know, all the people that were there and the equipment and the manpower, it was just worked you know, just like you're supposed to. Leonard summed up the importance of mutual aid in the fire in this way. It was absolutely critical. If those other fire departments hadn't been able to uh, show up and give the assistance they did, my guess is, and this is only a guess, but my guess would be that that building would have been totally destroyed. Firefighters finally brought the fire under control at around 7.30 that evening, but stayed on the scene until about midday December 12th to extinguish the hot spots. If local officials slept at all that night, they awoke to a nightmarish situation the next morning. The historic courthouse, a cornerstone of county government since 1885, lay in ruins. Then Page County Supervisor Maury Revis offered this grim assessment of the damage. Real bad. It just looks terrible. Water damage, uh, fire, you know, the only thing I can say is the fire department's done a terrific job to bring it to where it is right now, basically under control, and I have to compliment these people for the hard work they've done. And apparently with no injury or loss of life or anything. Hours after the fire, both local fire officials and the state fire marshal ruled the structure was not safe for occupation. Then Governor Terry Branstead issued an emergency disaster declaration for Clarinda. Branstead expressed his sympathy over the courthouse's destruction in a phone call to county officials the next day. First of all, let me express my great sorrow about the tragic fire at the Page County Courthouse. I remember... Uh, having been there for the rededication of your courthouse uh, in July 4th, I think four, about four years ago. Uh, we did that and also the Mental Health Institute at the same time. And you have a beautiful building and I was really very sorry to hear of this uh, tragic fire. Still, Revis and other officials face the daunting task of maintaining county government without a courthouse. The uh, county officials are very concerned about services to the, the taxpayer, the citizen. And uh, we'll do, make every effort to do it as soon as possible. And one of the factors is uh, getting to that building, uh, the old courthouse, and, uh, and getting our equipment or our records, uh, office equipment, desks, all that, computers. Uh, we need to get that out of there. Some county officials were briefly allowed back into the courthouse's charred remains to gather essential materials from their offices. Judy Clark served as Page County's auditor from 1987 to 2011. In a 2018 interview with KMA News, Clark recalled county officials were pleasantly surprised 
with the condition of the county's records. We were very lucky we didn't lose any any records at all. We had some that were wet, but we lost nothing. So that was the big thing for us, is that we were so fortunate to not lose anything. Other materials did not survive the fire. As County Recorder Dennis Parrott explained to then-KMA News Director Bill Bone, Precious artifacts were lost forever. Uh, Some paintings had been given to the county by the Lyle family of Clarinda. They were portraits of all the presidents from uh, George Washington through Woodrow Wilson. They had been commissioned in the early 1900s, and uh, um, there had been some, I'll say, rumors or speculation that uh, they could have been uh, a value of maybe up to a quarter of a half a million dollars. And uh, um, they were beautiful, and they really looked like the president's likenesses. They did belong to the county? Yes, they were a gift to the county, and they belonged to the county. And they're a total loss? Total loss. Total loss. There's nothing left. One of the early decisions made by the county's board of supervisors in the fire's wake involved selecting a location for a temporary courthouse. Eventually, the board selected Clarinda's former Cernet building, later the location of Shopco, over another option at the Clarinda Mental Health Institute. Then Page County recorder Wendell Leonard recalled that conducting court business inside the former retail outlet was challenging. Sound carried far too well in there because those uh, the ceilings in the, that building, of course, are metal. And the sound is transmitted through there. And, of course, the walls we had for the court were not insulated. That was one of those things that, you know, it... They just couldn't adequately insulate it to hold sound down. My courtroom adjoined the district courtroom, which was right next door to me. Well, when we were both in session at the same time, they could hear what I was doing, and I could hear what they were doing. After moving to a makeshift courthouse inside Clarenda's former Cernet building, Page County officials were faced with three choices. Restore the damaged courthouse, build a new courthouse in another location, or stay in the Cernet facility. Board members opted to place an $875,000 bond issue before the county's voters in August of 1992 to rebuild the courthouse at its existing location. Judy Clark wrote a book about the courthouse's history. In that same 2018 interview, Clark says local residents mounted a strong campaign to pass the bond issue. Andy Anderson from Shenandoah and Clark Crawford from Clorinda chaired the committee to restore the courthouse and to pass the bond issue. And really, it you know, you didn't hear too much people one way or the other. Some of us were very vocal that we wanted to restore. Some people were very quiet. So we didn't really know until that night what was going to happen um, with the vote. Though 67% of the vote was necessary, the county's voters said a resounding yes to the bond issue, which passed with 85%. Former Page County Magistrate Wendell Leonard attributes the referendum's astounding support to the desire of the county's residents to rebuild the courthouse. He says economics also played a factor. It was going to cost far more. In fact, just to take the the courthouse down to get ready to rebuild, it could cost anywhere from 100000 to a quarter of a million dollars just to remove the building and get ready to build again. And the cost of a new one was going to far exceed any repairs that were made on that building if the appraisers said that it could be restored, which, of course, they finally did. In addition to the bond issue, a separate fundraising drive secured money to place a new clock tower atop the courthouse. Two and a half years after the fire, the rebuilt courthouse was dedicated on June 5, 1994. Today, the courthouse stands as it was before that eventual night in December 1991. 
a focal point of the county and a beacon of resiliency. Retired county officials like Clark, who endured the disaster, still express pride over the building. I think when people come to town, they see it as a real monument, a testament to the people of Page County. You wouldn't believe how many tours I took in the years that I was there, especially, you know, the the 10 years after the fire. It, It seemed like almost every Saturday we had tours. People would come in and say how beautiful it was. Though it's been three decades since the fire, Williams says the memories remain fresh. That's just one of those things in the back of your mind. Every time you go in that courthouse or drive by as, as a fireman that was there, it's a, it's a constant reminder. We have a huge uh, framed picture in our meeting room and keeps, uh, keeps guys reminded of what can happen. Leonard says some of his memories of the night the courthouse burned are fading. Today, he prefers to focus on the positive aspects of the fire, such as how residents in Clarinda and surrounding cities rallied in support. It's one of those incidents in life that deep down you choose to forget as much of the bad points as you possibly can. And like I said earlier, I wouldn't want anybody to go through that because I said I would never go through it again. The Page County Courthouse fire 30 years ago this evening. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. For more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com, where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.